Support for this podcast comes from our friends at 70 Million, a Peabody-nominated podcast about criminal justice and jail reform from Lantigua Williams & Co. Each week, a team of reporters around the country chronicles how communities are enacting criminal justice reform in their neighborhoods, from the bail system and racialized policing to the school-to-prison pipeline and the spread of COVID in jails. This show gets right to the heart of the social upheaval we're experiencing and how communities all over the U.S. are taking action. Listen now at 70millionpod.com or search for 70 Million in your podcast app. This week on Making Contact... We want to change our world right now. Capitalism has been built on conquest of slave labor of one type or another, which has never ended. I think this is what the women's movement has tried to do, to break the bond and confront capitalism directly. We are children and we are dreaming. Oftentimes the sort of gender issue is pushed to the back burner or in a lot of like communist revolutions there's this approach of thinking like we'll just overthrow capitalism and institute communism and then the gender problem will just be solved. That's not working or hasn't worked. I don't think there's anything that makes me feel more proud than having decided to belong to a cooperative at this very difficult time. We are lovers and we are longing. Women are challenging male-dominated power structures and creating alternatives to the profit-driven economic model of capitalism. In this edition of Women Rising Radio, we featured two groups on the forefront of change. We'll hear about Jinwar, a women-led village in northern Syria, and we'll meet worker owners of Up and Go, a cleaning cooperative in New York City. To place this global movement for grassroots change in historical perspective, we spoke with radical feminist scholar Silvia Federici. Her books chronicle centuries of persecution and violence against women, including witch hunts that were carried out to dispossess women of their land, knowledge, and practices in order to strengthen nation-states and capitalism. were the witches. Most of us believe witch hunts are a thing of the past. Yet Silvia Federici cites a resurgence of attacks against women worldwide in her books Caliban and the Witch, and more recently, Witches, Witch Hunting, and Women. By the time I was finishing writing Caliban and the Witch, I was hearing about these uh, new witch hunts in Africa, and since then has only grown. And we now know particularly Central African Republic, but also parts of Nigeria, in South Africa, and there have been witch hunts in Kenya. And I began to do this work 
and investigating what's bringing this about. According to the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights, even today, women and children are being attacked, murdered, or exiled as witches. 21st century witch hunting is prevalent worldwide, with hotspots in Tanzania, Saudi Arabia, India, Ghana, Papua New Guinea, and Amazonia. Estimated numbers of women murdered in modern-day witch hunts may even exceed those of the 16th century. Silvia Federici's investigation into why this is happening now took her back to 16th century Europe and the growth of capitalist nation-states. The two main places for witch hunting were Europe and then uh, the colonies, Latin America in particular. For two centuries or more, you have a king or you have a municipality saying that witches among us. And in fact, books begin to be written explaining what is witchcraft that this is a new crime. And then people are encouraged to denounce witches. In the churches, for example, in England, Scotland, you could put the name of a woman in special boxes that were placed in the churches. And then she would be arrested, and she would be then subjected to all kinds of tortures. In many cases, she would be stripped naked, and she would be punctured with long needles, to search for the mark of the devil. When I was reading this material the first time, I was sick many, many times. I was really sick. I always say that often I couldn't sit, reading sit. I would really walk in the room because I, I would get so agitated I couldn't breathe. Because imagining the poor woman in a dungeon surrounded by men, subjected to those tortures, and knowing that the way out is to be burnt alive. I cannot even begin to imagine the level of anguish and desperation. So I began to ask myself, you know, who were these women? What are the crimes they're accused of? And then what was happening in which the persecution was taking place in the area, in the region? And what other social legislation was being adopted? in the same period. Sylvia found that in the 16th century, nation-states were consolidating power and invading other regions to enslave people and to steal land and natural resources. Those in power also seized their own people's land and criminalized social customs they saw as threats to their centralized control. Sylvia says that many of the same practices are happening today massive processes of land privatization, the destruction of communal land regimes, the areas that have more charges against women and accusation of witchcraft are the same that are at the center of land privatization drive or expulsion of people because companies are coming in for mining oil, agribusiness, even company of producing green gasoline, you know. So you have a massive attack on every form of subsistence. Women are the target, particularly older ones, those who are living alone, as in the past, because in the process of pushing people off the land, these are the most vulnerable, the most easy 
and also charging people of witchcraft. It's a way of dividing people. But another important component in all cases is the intervention of these religious sects, religious fundamentalist sects, who are promoting this idea that Satan is everywhere and that people were basically representative of the devil. So it's very clear that once again, this accusation of witchcraft, they have to do with phenomenal processes. They're very, very tied to the expansion of capitalist relations. That is really subverting, it's really destroying so many communities. People are losing their ancestral land, they're losing their culture, they're losing their spirit. There's really a major, major shift, which is what has happened in every part of the world with the shift to a capitalist economy. It's also a whole mental, emotional conception of what, what is value, what produces value, what life is about, what counts, right? Is the trees, is the air, is the river, is the cows, or is the money, the business. This is something of what I'm looking at, the devaluation of women, for example, in Africa, you know, by the World Bank in particular. The mission of the World Bank is to commercialize all of the land, to turn all the land into a land market, to turn all the land into a means of exploitation and capital accumulation. So women are a dead asset because they are insisting in the eyes of the World Bank on practices that they are backward, and this ideology that is really money. Money is the creator of life. And the women also, many are healers. No, the, the witch is the healer, the midwife. People didn't go to the doctor, but there'll be these women. I know this kind of practice has lasted in Italy into the 19th century. You know, women had their little patch of land with herbs. They knew the property of herbs and they were always targeted. As they are today, many women in Latin America were doing that, very looking at herbs, healing practices, begin to be accused again of being the witches. Hmm? At the conclusion of her book, Witches, Witch Hunting, and Women, Sylvia Federici asks, why should women from whose bodies each person who has ever lived has come into this world, who not only procreate but nourish children, be the target of so much violence, including new witch hunts? Sylvia concludes that capitalist nation-states still fear women's power and resistance. Women are challenging the status quo and saying, it doesn't have to be this way. They're forming cooperatives, organizing locally controlled support networks, and changing laws in support of women, children, and working people. One of these women-led communities is a village called Jinwar in the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, also known as Rojava. The word jinn means woman in Kurdish, and war means space or land. 
Jinwar village opened in 2018 and has become internationally known as a refuge for women and children of all ethnicities and religions. It's a place of sanctuary from the Syrian civil war and the incursions of Turkey, and it is drawing women from around the world who come to learn from this bold experiment in feminist, sustainable democracy. My name is Berchem, and I'm from Czech Republic. My name is Toana, and I'm from Italy. <laughs> we are in Rojava, and we are in Jingwar, which is the women village. Every woman that uh, like struggle in in a way, in her own way, against patriarchy, against state, against uh, monarchists, against uh, capitalism, somehow is some somebody that uh, inspire me or inspire us. Uh, I would say that uh, like women struggle and the women that inspire me are like uh, really like I, I, a lot from like the first witch to the <laughs> Nikilis woman that uh, at the end of the 19th century uh, were the first to like attack directly the Tsar system before the Bolshevik and so on. And also all the women that are still today, also us somehow. <laughs> that uh, us, uh, not me, very Van and Bertram, us as, as like uh, women from, from different uh, place that uh, we are like still struggling and uh, in each one uh, in her own way but like pointing uh, to a clear enemy and uh, dreaming of a clear <laughs> free life. Women Rising Radio met Jilan, a spokeswoman for the village. Jilan is quick to point out that she and other women do all the work in the village. I got to know there's a women's village. I saw it on television, and I wanted to come here. And I'd like to say that I am really happy I came here, because the village had it that I could get to know myself. And this is something really important. So my job in the village is that I'm the village speaker. And on the other hand, I'm also working in the village shop. And because this village is so beautiful to me, I would do any work that has to be done. Before I came here, I had no strength. And I couldn't decide anything. I was really weak. And before I came here, it was really difficult because I was under the influence of my family and the society. And I mean, it's not only for me but for all the women. We can say this in general, that the women here are under really big pressures from their families, from their society, so they really can't become free. And we also say every mother and every woman can come to this village and live here because it's open to everybody, and we give each other strength. Another villager, Gunesh, grew up in the United States and moved to Jinwar in 2019 when tensions in the region threatened the safety of the village. Ever since I was a teenager, I would say I was into feminist politics and queer liberation. Uh, I would say now I'm into anti-patriarchal politics. If we are waiting around and asking men for our liberation, they will never give it to us. 
Honestly, I think there should be a women's village everywhere. I think, you know, like in every place around the world, there should always be women's villages. Jinwar is one of many villages within Rojava, wedged between war-torn Syria and Turkey. In 2016, the Kurdish region declared itself separate from Syria, establishing a new social order based on decentralized power, religious freedom, gender equality, and the banning of child marriages. When Jinwar was attacked by Turkish forces in 2019, the Rojava Women's Defense Units protected it. This threat to Jinwar brought Ganesh to the village. I was finding Rojava and the resistance here and also the politics and the practice here to be a really interesting example of people trying to put into practice how we can organize in a more decentralized way. And I wanted to learn more about women's autonomy and how particularly like women coming together to create their own self-defense infrastructure and creating their own ways to fight. And I guess over a year ago, Trump announced he was pulling U.S. troops out of northeast Syria. And there were all of these news articles about like, this is the end of Rojava, like these really doom articles. And I just went crazy. I was like, I, I have to do something there. And so I wanted to come and help defend the revolution. Ganesh worked as a combat medic with Rojava forces. Her reasons for volunteering are rooted in her upbringing as a young Jewish woman in the United States. When I was younger in school, or even for my family, I learned a lot about genocide. I learned a lot about ethnic cleansing through stories from my family, through stories from my synagogue, through stories we read in textbooks. But I never understood the impact it can have on a community, even if no one is killed, although a lot of people are have been killed by the Turkish state, to take people and push them from their land when they have built for sometimes generations their villages up. The destruction that it does to the community, it ripples through like a stone in the water. It doesn't just stop at destroying the community that existed there. Kurdish villages and Arabic villages, Yazidi villages that have worked for generations to find a way to live with each other that works. And I think that fear of losing your home not just the house that you live in, but the community, the village, the culture, the language, the ways of relating to each other. I think that people here live with that heaviness, and I see this kind of fear. Jinwar Village's position between Syria and Turkey mirrors the position of women caught between warring states globally. As Silvia Federici points out, war is an assault on women as a foundation of community. Gunesh has experienced that on the ground in Jinwar. I think there are some ideas that the movement here really understands in a deep way that actually also the Turkish state understands. They just have really different goals. The movement here understands, for example, that when the women in the society are strong, the society is strong. And they see this as a good thing. You know, they see that as a really beautiful thing. And I think the Turkish state also sees that when women are strong, a society is strong. And when women are free, a society is free. But they don't want a strong society. They want a strong state. And they don't want a free society. <laughs> they want, you know, one language, one culture, one everything. And they want it all under one centralized power. 
And I think women all over the world should see this and, and learn from this. And we should also see our own strength in this. In Turkey, thousands of women rallied in August of 2020 to demand that their government recommit to the Istanbul Treaty, a 2011 European Council agreement to end all forms of violence against women. Signatories like Turkey, Poland, and Croatia are now considering withdrawing from the treaty in what feminists see as a step back to keep women in their place. The rights that Turkish women were marching to protect are the same as those cherished in Jinwar. You're listening to Making Contact. This program was produced by Women Rising Radio. Listen to our programs at womenrisingradio.com and at radioproject.org. We are weaving for liberation. We want to change our world right now. We are children. In the United States, labor rights have suffered many setbacks in recent decades. And domestic workers, mostly women, immigrants, and people of color, have even fewer protections. No longer willing to wait on a system that denies their basic rights to fair wages and safe working conditions, some domestic workers are forming worker-owned businesses. In 2017, several women-led cleaning co-ops in New York City joined forces to create Up and Go, an easy-to-use app that keeps them, and not high-tech investors, in the driver's seat. Women Rising Radio spoke with two of Up and Go's worker owners, Maria Veronica Rodriguez and Serenia Dominguez, about the benefits of being in a cooperative. Maria spoke about why she joined Up and Go. I was in a situation where I was being paid a just salary, but the employer told me there was another person who charged less, and I should reduce my price or she would employ that other person. Then she took my job away. And when I found out that there was a way to work together with other people, I immediately got involved to have a better work situation. I'm a founder of my cooperative. We had a lot of training to help us to work in community, to know our rights, to know our resources, and to meet others who've been in the cooperative movement for years. Maria is the secretary of her cooperative and also serves on the membership committee. Being a business owner has changed Maria's attitude toward herself and women's empowerment. When you're an owner and worker, the thing is, we make the decisions in our cooperative. To be the owner means to have the responsibility in my hands for the business to yield better results and to reach the market where it is. My cooperative is women, and to be in the middle of a circle of women helps us a lot to discover the skills we all have. We come from a culture where always we were governed by a man. So we have discovered our potential 
And that is very beautiful. Serenia Dominguez is glad to be working with other women as part of Up and Go and feels the cooperative model offers her a better future. I really saw an uncertain future for myself because sometimes I was not paid for my work. And sometimes they thought, I'm a machine that doesn't drink water, doesn't eat, or go to the bathroom. I had no secure future. I could fight for absolutely nothing. To be part of a cooperative where the empowerment belongs to the women is a total challenge. We know that the men have a mind more focused towards capitalization, but also there is the human side. Yes, it's a challenge, but I believe that is the difference of being part of a cooperative group of women. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the women of Up and Go struggled to get by with a huge loss of residential clients. Serenia says they shifted their focus toward cleaning commercial buildings, which is considered an essential frontline service. I think that if I hadn't been part of a cooperative, I would have ended up in a corner of my house crying and suffering. But being part of this cooperative made all the difference. We learned how to cope, how to support us as cooperatives. Maria Rodriguez spoke about weathering the pandemic with tears in her eyes. They're tears of joy because to belong to a cooperative gave us a family. It gave us support. We survived. And I don't think there's anything that makes me feel more proud than having decided to belong to a cooperative at this very difficult time. Cooperatives offer a way of life that encourages inclusion and helps minorities to reach a better standard of living. And we can transform our generations and leave for our daughters and our granddaughters a better world. Serenia sees the cooperative movement as a way to make the United States more economically inclusive. I think it's very important that we be included and not excluded. At the end, we are part of the business. We are also a part of this capitalism. Resistance to male-dominated capitalist exploitation is global, with women creating new societies and new economic models. Sylvia Federici is optimistic about these movements to empower and employ women. I have developed a lot of ties with women in Mexico, in Argentina, and more and more in Colombia, in Brazil. I can say that there are tremendous struggles taking place. You see so many, 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 many women in the street that it like, looks like infinite rivers. They are dealing with health issues, water, contamination, all of that. Indigenous women, 
women in the rural area, peasant women, they are this network, women from the unions, women from the solidarity economy, and they have this moment of coming together and sharing and setting agendas. For instance, every year in the week beginning with October 12th, here once used to be called Columbus Day week, <laughs> there is called the, the week of resistance. They choose a city and they converge on the city. On average, there's been 60,000, 70,000 women, imagine coming from all parts of the country and all walks of life. Yeah. And then, you know, they work out uh, what to do, what are the key issues. That, to me, is incredibly remarkable. And that's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, produced by Women Rising Radio. Special thanks to Sylvia Morse of Up and Go, Tekosin of Jinwar Village, Bunker Seifert, The New International, Topher Ruth and Berkeley Advanced Media Studios, and Lisa Rudman of Making Contact. Music courtesy of Bonnie Lockhart, Betsy Rose, and the women of Jinwar Village. Listen to our programs at womenrisingradio.com and radioproject.org. Our producer is Lynn Feinerman. Our consulting producer is Stephanie Welch. And our audio engineer is Emily Harris. I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>